0: you can't replace part of the brain like you treat them the same the source of truth for the medtech
1: industry bo oh, exists for the so robot understands things
0: automatically number one show in the medtech industry so Stryker got ahead of that and changed it. in the 90s billion dollar company that helped apply a lot of things State of medtech tech your host omar m khatib what's going on everybody welcome back to the show super excited about this episode as you know i have a thing for some of the uh early class of intuitive surgical yes some of you guys give me a hard time like oh why do you always cover uh you know these early class people from from intuitive well intuitive is probably one of the greatest success stories in my opinion in our industry um you know it went through a lot of ups and downs, struggled a lot in the early days, and somehow made it uh, to be one of the most premier med device companies on planet Earth. And by the way, I'm going to look this up right now because um, you've heard me mention this before. Many of you haven't. Uh, if I look today, Medtronic's market cap, who has, what, thousands of products, right? And it's the world's largest med device company. Their market cap is $115 billion today. Intuitive is at $137 billion. And they got two products, right? So it's it's a pretty impressive spread there. So those early days were really dog years and really going to war with uh, the traditional way of doing surgery, specifically radical prostatectomy. So one of the people that I want, I've been wanting to have on the show for a long time is Jim Alexi. Jim Alexi, um, Start off at Intuitive Sergio as a director of sales and rose very quickly to a level of VP of sales. And, you know, in his last uh, four years there, he was a senior vice president of North America, South America, Australia, and New Zealand. Just to kind of highlight some significant accomplishments for him, he developed and implemented strategic plans for about $1.8 billion in revenue generation, which was about 90% of overall corporate revenues. He maintained accountability for a $275 million expense budget, consistently delivering target results under budget. He exceeded revenue budget for 51 consecutive quarters over a 14-year period, Right. Pretty wild. Select benchmarks for revenue growth: 175 million in 2004, 540 million in 2007, 1.2 billion in 2010, and 1.8 billion in 2014. As a vice president of U.S. sales, he also drove an install base from 253 to 2,200 systems, and increased procedures from 36,000 to 400,000 per year, and increased the headcount from 48. To 850, so there's not a lot of people in the med tech universe who've accomplished something like that at that level of growth. He went on to, uh, you know, be an executive at a variety of other companies. He was VP of Worldwide Worldwide Sales at Nevro for a little bit. He was a Chief Commercial Officer at ViewRay, you know. And so in this episode, we talk about those times during during uh, Intuitive, those dog years, you know, as I like to call them. And this is why this episode is called. War stories from the trenches, right? Um, and so we highlight all that and more. Now, a couple of shout outs to uh, some sponsors. Number one, Clary. Clary has been a phenomenal sponsor for me in the show for over three quarters now. We're renewing again. Um, I just wanted to welcome back To the state of MedTech, well, not really welcome back, but to say thank you for continuing to support the show. Um, If you are a company that uses Salesforce.com for your CRM, you have to protect your investment because a lot of us have an idea of what Salesforce is, and then we buy it and we realize, oh, wait, this is really expensive. We got to maintain it ourselves. So what Clary does, essentially, it integrates into Salesforce and does a couple things. One big thing it does is that it automates a lot of the data entry that the reps have to do into Salesforce. A lot of the things that you need Salesforce to do, the data has to be good going in, and a lot of the data that's going in is not good because the reps are too busy. It's a lot of work. So Clary automates that data going in, and then what they do is they make revenue right the idea of running revenue a collaborative process usually that's been limited only to sales but in this complicated world of medical device sales right we got to think about revenue as something that's being owned and collaborated on with sales with marketing and clinical success and so their platform plugs into your sa- into your salesforce crm starts giving you predictable revenue giving you ideas as to which deals to focus on what to do for pipeline velocity and more i can't speak more highly enough about it this is why they are the first main sponsor of my show because they fit the mission that I'm trying to accomplish, which is to elevate how we sell and market in this industry. So if you're interested to learn more, click the link below in the show notes to click directly to their life science page. They've you know, they picked up some really big names and big logos in our industry as customers uh, or go to clary.com C-L-A-R-I to learn more. And finally, if you're a startup and you need help growing your commercial traction, right? Finding those early adopters. We, we here at Katib & Co, we want to work with you. And one of the things that we do is we use content and social media to help your CEO, your founder, and your team reach more physicians, find ways to get those early adopters. Because it's really like finding a pin, a needle in the haystack, right? And we use social media to scale that out. There's some companies that we're working with now that they don't have any commercial team, but we are essentially their commercial partner, laying that foundation down on the sales and marketing side, creating content to raise awareness, which by the way, also helps with investor awareness. So if you're interested in, to learn more about that, book some time with me, go to katibandco.com co.com to learn more. Now let's get on to our episode with Jim Alexi. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show and really excited for today's guest, you know, uh, We did a few of these war stories and lessons uh, episodes in the past, and you you all seem to love it. Uh, I think of all the different success stories in MedTech, there's one that's always been – Maybe, maybe kind of a weird obsession of mine. Just because it's, it was. I think it was just the timing of it, the stories I heard, and of course, I've been mentored by a lot of people out of it, which is Intuitive Surgical, and more specifically, the early days of Intuitive, which was from you know around 1999, 2000, all the way to 2010. And then, in some weird way, I'm, I'm this like indirect historian where I've had a lot of people on the show. Um, one of those names of of the early early class of Intuitive that made Intuitive what it is is Jim Alexi. Jim uh, was the senior vice president of sales uh, over at Intuitive. Um, somebody I've heard about for a long long time, and it took about I think eleven or twelve years until we finally met through the power of LinkedIn. Uh, Jim is now uh, you know doing some executive coaching and also commercial consulting, and I am very happy to say, which I was very pleased about this, um, and I think this is the future of. I think MedTech leadership is that Jim is also an avid user of my software, Omnicreator. So he's getting ready to put out some great content and he, he got a whole series lined up for January. So Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Omar. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to sit down and talk with you.
0: Oh, same here. Same here. Well, before we get into it, you know, uh, a lot of people, at least in the, you know, laparoscopic robotic space, you know, are familiar with you. But for some of my audience who are not familiar with you, maybe you can give a little bit of background on who Jim Alexi is, like, where'd you grow up? Um, how did you get into med tech? Because very few of us go to college saying, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna go to buy sales, mm-hmm. right? And maybe give us like sort of a little like snapshot of your career. And then and then we'll get into the good stuff, which is all the uh, stories and, you know, lessons from the trenches of intuitive.
1: Sure. I grew up on a family farm in, uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, right in the middle of the Amish country. And I went to college in a, uh, a small school outside of Dallas, Texas. Didn't have two nickels to rub together. And, um, I became a paramedic. It's just how I put my way through college. And it was great because you could work 24 hour shifts and put all your classes on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, and work Tuesday, Thursday, 24 hours. And uh, sometimes you'd sleep the whole time. Sometimes it would be uh, it would be nonstop. And so I thought I wanted to be a physician. And uh, after four years of being a paramedic, I decided that was not the life for me. But uh, I I decided I wanted to get into medical device sales. And uh, and was connected with a company called Automated Instruments, which was a part of U.S. Surgical in the late '80s, early '90s, as laparoscopy started to. Uh, to come on board and I, that was my first sales job in the medical device industry and uh, it, was, it was great. And you can sort of sum my career up in that I've, um, for the past 30 years or so, I have introduced uh, new innovative proprietary technology into the operating room and, and healthcare environments. And so I uh, went from Intuitive Surgical to a small company called Ultracision, uh some of your audience may have heard of a product called the Harmonic Scalpel and um was one of the very first sales managers for them and we sold that to J&J and uh then I I went from a small company 20 sales per reps to uh to J&J and they asked me to be involved in a startup called Indigo and which was a a, a laser for BPH and I did that for three or four years, and then in uh, in early two, I got a call from uh, from my old boss at uh, at U.S. Surgical, Jerry McNamara, and he asked me to come out to California and look at a new technology called the Da Vinci surgical system. and And so I came in in uh, in July of two thousand. It didn't have any skins on it. Uh, it. Didn't work very well, to be honest with you. They were uncertain about. Um, about what the, the value proposition was, where it was going to be used. We thought cardiac. And so in August of 2000, I joined intuitive and there were three of us. And, um, and then one of my good friends, um, from Indigo was Chris sells. And so Chris was living in the, on the East coast and we needed a West coast, uh, sales manager. And so I called Sells and said, come do this with me. And, and so, uh, I spent 14, almost 15 years there. And, uh, what a great experience, uh, you know, lifelong uh, memories and friends. And then, uh, and then in the last eight or nine years, I've, I've done a couple of different things. I um, was a CEO of a company called Free Air and ended up selling that. I was the CEO of a company called ViveBio, Bio and, uh, and then was the chief commercial officer for ViewRay, uh, the Meridian, which is a system that has an MRI and a linear accelerator. Uh, combined and a, a great technology, and so currently I'm I'm consulting. I'm doing some executive coaching, some commercial consulting, and just looking for uh, either to continue to do that or for the next great opportunity. And so uh, I'm I'm anxious to uh, to share my my thoughts with you and and some of the things that I've experienced over the years in this industry.
0: That's great. That's great. I- I'll tell you what, Jim. Like you know the pr- you know the problem with working with a uh, at least in the early days of robotics companies, that once you do that, it's very hard to get excited about new tech. You know, like I remember when I left Missouri Robotics, I was kind of like looking around. I'm like, okay, what's what's the next exciting thing? And it's just like very hard to get excited about things. And once you do like hard, difficult, complicated technology like that, like you, that's really all you're drawn to. So maybe a, a really good place to start. And again, um. I'm gonna bring. I'm kind of. I have a lot of uh, notes in front of me here, like from all these like different books and stuff uh, that I've written over the years. Um, so I'm gonna bring up things I heard, uh, and so you're gonna validate and add some color to it. So like, okay. So one of the things that with with intuitive, so intuitive, uh, the, the Da Vinci robot came out of um, out of uh, SRI, I believe, right?
1: Stanford Research Institute. Yeah. And- initially with DARPA. So the government, the, the initial idea was that a, a combat surgeon is millions of dollars and 10 years to train. And so if you had a MASH unit, if, for those of your audience have seen that old show MASH. Uh, in
0: Great show. I've seen that. Show. My dad watched it as a surgeon. So, <laughs> so you
1: know, imagine as they're as they're close to the front lines, you're putting highly trained, difficult to replace people in harm's way. And so the initial value proposition was they could have a remote robot in, you know, a, an operating room close to the front, and the physician would be 20 or 30 miles back and would be manipulating the instruments, and um, and so you wouldn't risk losing a surgeon. And so when DARPA exited, uh, they they sold it to Stanford Research Institute and then uh in I think ninety-five or ninety-six, uh, Fred and, and Rob Young uh bought the technology and, and really started to develop it for commercial use.
0: So the the first thing that I, I recall, and again, there's a there's so many um sayings and I guess philosophies in our industry that I think you can map back to intuitive surgical, and maybe prior to that to you to to US surgical. Mm-hmm. Um so originally, the, the robot, uh, you mentioned like it was considered be, to be used in cardiac. And so I don't know who said it, but at some point, oh, and I just I hit hit something under my desk. At some point, somebody, uh, when when the, w- what was the aha moment that made people say like, we should go into radical prostatectomy? And I think like one of the arguments is like, man, like we don't want to become a P robot, right? Because, you know, because cardiac surgery is really sexy and everything to go into like, prostate is like not exactly sexy at least back then what what, what was that like? like what's the story behind that
1: well that was a pretty interesting conversation in the company i have to be honest with you and, and i've heard that saying we shot for the heart and, and hit the prostate um you know what uh two of my initial um uh sales efforts were uh saint luke's and methodist in in houston and uh I would go talk to Dr. Cooley, who's a, a renowned cardiac surgeon. And- that
0: guy is a legend. And by the way, I got to just comment. I was just talking about him with my dad the other day because the you know we don't have that as often these days, but the big rivalry in medicine was Debakey versus Cooley, and they were like, you know, a few miles apart in Houston, you know, uh, pioneering the 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 frontier, but we were talking and, you know, my dad and I were saying like, you know, a lot of like the greatest minds, you know, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, debakey is one of them is like these guys were kind of jerks you know like you know debakey is, was a notorious jerk I, and for, for anybody who's listening who might be offended like he's a brilliant man but the guy was a jerk like big time big time big time jerk and i met people who worked for him but i told my dad i was like yeah i was like but you know i heard dr cooley was like the smoothest coolest guy like he was like dr wonderful for everybody so just <laughs> i just had to like share that little tidbit but please yeah continue
1: well actually they were not miles apart they were right across the street and uh, i only met dr debakey a couple times he had really retired cooley was still was still involved with them with one of the coolest physicians i've ever met a guy named bud fraser who's an amazing heart surgeon Um, and so uh, talk about difficult personalities i would meet with cooley almost every week and um and he would give me a new reason every week about why he wouldn't buy it. And I'll just give you one, he'd be like, you know, uh, operating with da Vinci's like having sex with a canoe. You'd do it once and it'd probably feel okay, but you wouldn't wanna do it every day. And uh, <laughs> it's like, and um, we, were, we were competing against uh, computer motion at the time. And I walked into his office and he said, I think I've decided to buy a da Vinci. And I said, oh, great, uh, and tell me why. And he goes, well, it's much bigger than the computer motion robot, and so when we melt it down, I'll get a lot more for the scrap metal, and um, and so that's that that was kind of the sales process.
0: Right? That sounds that sounds like the typical like run through the mill for for dealing the surgeon. I tell people this is this is the hardest sales job on planet. I don't care what anybody says because like a you're doing you're dealing everything. So like you know back then even now like not only the sales and prospecting but the install and everything. But on top of it. Every single one of your customers is a lot smarter than you. It's like I can go sell software for Salesforce, and you know I can sell to a Fortune 100 CMO. I've never been a Fortune 100 CMO, but like I've been a marketer, so there's some relation. We're selling to a doctor. Like this is it's just so hard, and you get you get those kind of personalities, you know.
1: It's pretty tough. My my middle daughter wants to be in medical device sales, and so she's like, okay, what do I need to to be successful? And I'm like. Lots of people have asked me that question. I said, if I had to boil it down to one thing, it would be pain tolerance. You know, when somebody says no, uh, you know, leave, you're like, okay, so that means like eight o'clock tomorrow morning, come back, right? Uh, you know, that's what you hear. And you just have to have, you just have to have that pain tolerance and resilience. But um, but back to the original question. So we received a, a video uh, of a physician in um, in Europe that had done, a radical prostatectomy with da Vinci, early da Vinci, the standard system. And I think it was a seven hour procedure and then he opened. And, uh, and so we watched it on fast forward and um, I uh, talked about what I know. Uh, I was like, there's no way this is a dead end. But you know, the interesting thing about that marketplace is that it was, it had all the elements of success that cardiac didn't. Um, and so it wasn't consolidated. There was no dominant industrial player in urology. It was not under direct visualization. Pat Walsh had had invented the nerve sparing, uh, which was really just uh, you know finding the the prostate with your fingers and peeling the uh, the nerves off the prostate. So it was very difficult. It was high risk. There was a lot of blood loss. It was very vascular structure, and so there was a a huge opportunity to uh, capture that market. And I think that's why it took off so, so much. And look, it was, it was rough going in the beginning, um, as we're trying to define a procedure, define our value proposition, train reps, um, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of things. And to top it all off, um, you know, if you look at from a hospital perspective, um, you know, a cardiac surgery robot has uh, has cachet. And, uh, and you know, from a reimbursement standpoint, a physician or, I mean, an administrator can understand, like, okay, well, I understand why i would spent a million dollars. But for urology, uh, you know, first of all, they always take their procedures out of the hospital. They're, you know, they don't have very much political power. Uh, they don't make much money for the hospital, at least that's what they thought. And so those, it was a difficult market to sell, but, um, but there were elements that made it perfect to, um, to really have a beachhead in that marketplace and, and really launch uh, intuitive as a mainstream technology.
0: What, what was, um, you know, who, who, was the per, who was the surgeon, uh, like who's the surgeon who came up with that aha moment that, you know, essentially used the da Vinci on a prostatectomy, like wh- who was it? When did that happen? See like there's all these stories out here, but but I don't have the details, you know
1: yeah it, it really um <laughs> the person who really uh, drove the market forward in the u s was a a a guy out of Henry Ford named Manny Menon and uh, a phenomenal phenomenal person, phenomenal surgeon, and he on his own dime went to Europe to learn how to do it and he came back and really established Henry Ford. As kind of the place to go for a minimally invasive prostatectomy, and they were very aggressive in uh, in advertising the program. And so once you uh, you know we were talking earlier about uh, you know early adopters and and how key opinion leaders early key opinion leaders can can drive forward uh, drive a market forward. And so probably the person that was most against it was a, was a physician out of uh, Johns Hopkins named Pat Walsh. And he was kind of the father of the, of the previous methodology. And so you have a community uh, a physician in Henry Ford, and you have a, um, an academic uh, a physician. And so it was very interesting to see the adoption by the society. So on one hand, people from all over the world were coming into Detroit to get their procedure done. And on the other hand, the academics were like, oh no, it's a marketing tool. It doesn't have any clinical value. It's, you know, it doesn't have any, uh, any data behind it. And so those were interesting market dynamics that, uh, that we had to contend with.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And I think what was, was m- most interesting back then is, you know, even, even up until I think 08, 09, um, was social media was really in its infancy? Like you really didn't have. I think the iPhone came out in oh six oh seven, right. but you didn't even have social media apps until maybe 08, I think. Right. And so when you would hear about it, you'd see it on the internet and everything. So I, you know, I heard like at conferences, you know, when you guys did your exhibits, like it was just it was just wild because like everybody was coming to see this thing for like in in person. What what was that like? Because when I was at Mazur... Uh, and we would exhibit the robot at, uh, at spine surgery conferences, like part of the training and part of the thing I prepared, like our sales team for was just like, you're going to have surgeons. You're just going to act like morons and they're going to just come by just to talk smack and just to get in a fight with you. Like oh, literally they like, I'll never forget, like no offense to anybody. Cause I'm from the South, but there was this one doctor out of like Wyoming or Montana. And this guy had like the most bastardized version of a, like, southern draw mixed with some like mid middle america accent it was so bad and he came over and he's like tell me about this here thing and i was like oh man here we go so what what, what was what was that like at the exhibit hall for you guys like give us give us some give us some stories about what what was that like you you must have had people coming by and just throwing rocks oh
1: my goodness um you know first of all intuitive um uh, back then maybe not so much now but but back then was notoriously Uh, fiscally conservative and so they would
0: uh, how fiscally conservative i I know you're going how fiscally conservative jim
1: well i'll put it to you this way i was the vp of sales before i ever had my own room on any meeting with intuitive chris sales was my roommate for six years
0: so i just want to repeat that so when you guys would have your national sales meetings and everything you're an executive sales salesperson you guys shared rooms
1: oh yeah Oh
0: yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. So,
1: oh yeah. And, and there were, I, I would look at, uh, I would go to California and I wouldn't even think of first class. We'd sit in the back and, and, uh, so, but they would always get one of the worst booth spaces. Uh, we, we used to tease, we'd be like wherever the restrooms are, that's where you could find the uh, Da Vinci. And, um, and so they would have to look for us. And, um, and so, you know, early on, just like you said, people would be like, oh, this is a big marketing tool. This is, this doesn't have anything. But, you know, what they would also see is a line of 40 or 50 people that would be waiting for a test drive. And literally in, in some of those early uh, urology meetings, we would give people the hook that they, they, they would want to, you know, it would be like a one minute test drive and somebody would want to spend three, four five minutes, but you had 40 or 50 people waiting and you'd be like, okay, you, you need to go. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a little bit of both, a lot of excitement in the marketplace once it started to take off. But, but you know, with any new technology, um, you know, when they don't understand it and it's disruptive, they always go to the same places. It's slow, it's expensive, it doesn't have any value. Um, and so that's their own process of, of selling selling themselves. Where that wherever that physician is on the curve of adoption, um, I'm sure you've you know you know Jeff Moore's um, uh, you know adoption curve you know wherever they are it, it usually is the same objections you know and I used to say to to physician, they'd be like it's too slow and I'd be like you know really when you look at it where is speed on on the, is is speed of operation in your top five things because I certainly would never go to a surgeon who said you know, my claim to fame is I do these procedures quicker than anybody else. I'd be like, "Well, thanks, but I'm going to go some. I'm going to go to the slow guy who's really meticulous." And uh, and so they use speed or cost or one of those things, and it's really not. They're they're just in the process of of going through their own adoption cycle.
0: I completely agree. And by the way, like. You know, when I um so again, like I, I'm I'm this I, I feel like this uh, uh, the son of intuitive in some weird way because, you know, being mentored by Chris, you know, some of the guys who I was mentored by out of out of intuitive. So Chris Sells, Chris Prentice, Tim Murowski, Ken Husted, uh, some other people, Joe O'Connor, uh, you know, there's a long list. And so part of that is like there's a there's a uh some required reading that I got. So when I when I joined Mazor, um I was um fresh out of medical school. So like the only thing I knew how to do was just like study and teach myself. So I would ask like, what, what, what should I be reading? And a lot of people didn't have ex, uh, like suggestions except for the guys who came out intuitive. And so like on my back shelf here, and I think like, uh, you'll appreciate it. So, uh, barbarians at the gate, uh, that's a great one. That's one. Bureaucrats
1: to, bar- Bure- bureaucrats. Barbarians,
0: barbarians to, to beer, bureaucrats. Yeah, so Barbarians to Bureaucrats, um, hardball. Yeah. hardball. Hardball is another one. Hope uh, is
1: not a strategy.
0: Hope is not a strategy. I, I don't have that one. That's a good one. I got to get that. But of course, the the um, the foundation, and is, I just pulled this out, is uh, Crossing the Chasm. So this is my version. I was fortunate enough to have Jeff Moore on my show because he. I, I was writing about different versions of this and I had my own like adaptation and he, he, you know, I finally got to meet a brilliant guy, but I just want to show this because this thing is beat to hell. Like this is, you know, all these like earmarks. I have all these notes and this is, so I had one in 2012 or 13, but I lost it in 15. So this one, I had to buy a new one in 2017. And this one is just, yeah, I need to buy a new one, but it's just like such a, such a great, but like this, needs to be attached to your hip if you're in this industry. Like if you want to be taken seriously, in my opinion, you got to know this. Like I, like I have a litmus test when I show this chart on certain presentations. And I'm like, have you seen this? And when someone says no, I'm like, all right. Well, let me, let me help you along here.
1: I would say, you know, if you, uh, if, you know, your audience is new, um, uh, young in their career, and new to the medical device uh, industry, that book, is a roadmap of how uh new technologies go from their infancy to and, and you look I and mean, the reason why intuitives you know so so famous is that obviously it was highly successful and but they crossed the chasm in multiple different specialties and that's what makes them really special and mm-hmm. uh, but that book is a roadmap it's it's really worth um it's really worth uh reading and, and i just like you i use it um uh, Frequently, nearly in every engagement, in every job, I use that in some of the things that that Jeff Moore.
0: Same here. here. I really like it. To, I want to go back to, to something. You know, one of the things, you know, uh, people, you can criticize Intuitive for like a variety of different things, you know, mm-hmm. like any company. The one thing to to this day, to this day that I tell people, I'm like, you know, I got my own opinion about different things from Intuitive. I was like, you cannot criticize their their insane level of discipline and rigor when it comes to business development. And by the way, I'm just going to say it publicly. I I might lose listeners. I guarantee I'm going to get some angry emails. But like a prime example of this where I was like, oh, this will be interesting. Because, you know, Intuitive is really well established and everything. Was when um, J&J acquired Oris and they had their first to market with and everything. Intuitive came out with Ion a year later. And that was a textbook example of just how do you clean somebody's clock. I mean, they just wiped the floor with them. And, you know, and I hate to admit it, but it, it's just true. And it's unbelievable. You know? So you know, that level of discipline. I want to start with uh, computer motion. Computer motion was a competitor to Intuitive. So well, Tell us what happened. What what exactly happened with Computer Motion?
1: Well, Computer Motion uh, was a small company out of Santa Barbara and, uh, a competing technology. And, um, they were more voice activated than, than we were. So we, we, um, they, they tried to sell us against that. We didn't have any haptic feedback. And so haptic feedback for, for your audience is the, the ability to feel the tissue with your fingers through the instruments. And
0: Cause the so- instruments would like push back or vibrate a that's little right, bit. Right? right?
1: And so, um, you know what well, the 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 fundamental element of intuitive is that your senses are all intertwined and so if you make a, a, the acuity of of vision so great um you can you don't need haptic feedback you know exactly and that's why if you look I'm, I'm sure you've seen some of the early videos where they peel a grape and um and some other and so it's like you don't need haptic feedback because the visual the, the vision system was so outstanding but uh, computer motion, um, you know, w- was, a, w- was a different uh, system. Probably, I would say, you know, they weren't around. I think that w- they were acquired in late two, if I recall. But probably the biggest thing is we were, uh, our, our system was nine, and that was the price. It was $980,000. Now, you could pay net 30. Uh, that, that, was, that was where we negotiated. And so that's a really difficult stance for a new company with a new technology in the market to say we're not going to discount and um and so our average sale price was you know uh, $10,000 and uh computer motions was anywhere from I think I recall like 250,000 to a million and so they were big deal makers and and um and so I give Lonnie Smith credit it was very difficult as a as a sales manager to to walk in and say, "Okay, I've got this unproven technology that's going into a, a nascent market that is uh, that really we don't have a tremendous amount of clinical data, and it's uh, we don't really at that point we hadn't engaged with the London yet, and so we didn't really have any leasing uh, options. It was just buy it for nine hundred and eighty thousand, kind of take it or leave it, and um, but." What that led to was uh, was a lot of uh, fiscal discipline, a lot of discipline in the sales force. And I mean, I could I could fill one of your episodes with the mistakes that were made with Intuitive like any company. And uh, and certainly over the course of time, there's decisions that uh, that I made that I you know, would do something different. But at the time, I tried to, to, to make the best decision. But if you look at the quality of people that have come out of Intuitive, early Intuitive, 2010 and before is what I say is early intuitive. The yeah, um, the, the the Christian Babini's, the the, the Andy Sales, yeah. And um, you're on mute, uh, Omar.
0: Yeah, no, I I have to do that because uh, I have a I have a young son in the background. Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: I understand. Uh, yeah,
0: I was gonna say Christian Babini, another wonderful guy. Andy Sale also, I've, oh. I've I've got a chance to meet him. I'll tell you a great story about you know, because again, this is like story hour with Intuitive. Um, when I first met Christian Babini, he was the VP of sales at at met Tech Rosa, which was our competitor at Mazor. And I didn't know anything about him, nor did I know that he was, uh, sales, uh, Chris Sells is like, I think, first manager, you know, so they, they had some history. And so, and I, like, I, I've been around the block, not only just in spine and robotics, like, now that with my own company, I've been in so many different parts of the industry. There's something about... Ex intuitive and ex US surgical, that they have kind of like this uh, godfather esque swagger to them. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's like men or women, like they, like you, I can just spot them from miles away. I don't know what it is. Like it's not what they, just something. But I remember um, I was at the booth and I saw cells start, you know, walking down the aisle and it was a big aisle and it was like during non opposing hours and Babini was walking towards him. And I like nudged something like, oh shit, that like are they gonna fight each other? And then they were they were like walking fast towards me. And I'm like, what's gonna happen? And then all of a sudden, like they they hug each other. Christian like gives cells a big kiss on the cheek and stuff. They're like laughing, and I was like, what the hell's going on? Cause like, you know, this is like our arch enemy. I was like, what the hell's going on? But the the coaching tree of intuitive, and you you wrote a, you wrote a great article about this, is that like all these people left Intuitive and they went on to like you know, so Andy Sales won, Christian and they all went to be like high-ranking executive officers and had like wonderful success. That's something I should talk to my creative director. We should make a coaching map, like a visual one of like all the people who came out of, you know, early intuitive and what they went on to do. Kind of like PayPal mafia. Right. You
1: know? <laughs> well, you know, probably I think the difference is that, you know, it's, uh, it's low arrogance and high confidence. And, um, you know, there wasn't, there really was very few politics and intuitive at that time. There was, uh, you know, not a whole lot of arrogance. It was like, we're going to get it done. And some of the, one of the projects I'm working on is, uh, early intuitive stories. And I am, I, am I, of-
0: ask you, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I, I was, you know, I heard rumblings about this before you and I met They're like, you know, Jim Alexi's working on a book and I'm like, all right, well, you got to tell us more about that now.
1: Well, it's just some of the amazing stories. Uh, I got a call. I'll tell you one. I got a call uh, from a uh, an area sales manager. Uh, and, you know, well, first let me back up and say, you know, the the good and bad of early intuitive was that uh, we did not want to get purchased. We did not want to get bought by J&J or some of the other companies that were looking at us. And so the, the best way to do that was to have a high stock price. And so you would pay multiple billions of dollars for a couple hundred million in revenue and even now you know they're five or six billion dollars in revenue and they're are 95 billion in market cap and so that's why intuitive has stayed uh has stayed independent all these years and so the pressure to hit the quarterly number if you miss the number and the stock you know halved then it would be a great time for J&J or another company to come in and buy it and so the pressure to uh, to hit those numbers was intense. At the same time, uh, over the dot uh, the dot com bust in two thousand one, two thousand two, um, and then in two thousand and seven, a uh, the Sarbanes Oxley Act came through, and so it really impacted capital sales. You actually had to install the device and have it accepted, have it signed, so it wouldn't be like. And I think those rules have relaxed a little bit. Uh, now. But back in in that time, uh, you know, you had to have the system installed in the or at least accepted by the customer to recognize the revenue. So I got a call late, late, late on the last day of the quarter that said, hey, we're not going to get this last system. And it was in Pittsburgh. And I said, well, why is that? And uh, they said, well, the the moving truck uh, grounded out uh, on the steep streets of Pittsburgh. And it's like five blocks away and it's a union shop and we can't get it. It's going to, it's going to be the next, it's going to be tomorrow till we get it. I was like, we need that system. And so uh, we, we had amazing sales reps uh, and they went and got cash out of their ATM and paid the dock workers at UPMC to go and push three crates of filled with Da Vinci five blocks and so that the doc manager could sign it so we could recognize the revenue and that was the level of commitment and those kind of stories i could i mean there's literally hundreds of those type of stories and that's what i'm going to write
0: about that's amazing and you know those are the kind of things that i that i live for to hear about and i i got to experience them i think this is what got me into startups was you know when i left medical school i mean i don't know god must love me you know because my first gig was you know i I think and this I say this because I know that a lot of the people who are listening to this are like early in their career um we've all dealt with like lousy recruiters who like knocked our you knocked our confidence and and belief in ourselves and everything um but uh you know I was trying to uh I was trying to like make my way in an industry and I was told like oh you're gonna have to start out like no offense to anybody but like you know work in a distributorship, a small one durable medical equipment everything you can't get into robotics. And my first gig was in uh, robotics and some of the things that like I got. So first of all, I worked with Chris Sells, Prentice, you know, these guys who came out of intuitive. So those are the people that I got like my foundation laid by. So I thought that was normal. The other thing was that some of the early up and coming people like uh, Robert Brelove, Matt Afshari, uh, Adam Krasowski, there's this wild story. Um, I believe it was Adam Krasaus. No, it was Sean Stewart and, and Robbie Breedlove Bre- where in the middle of like this insane snowstorm blizzard in Texas, um, they needed to complete a case. And so they risked their lives literally driving out to the middle of nowhere. They got out of their cars, um, did a handoff of the robot, and then went and completed a case. So like that stuff I just absolutely love. Like you don't hear stories like that, no offense, in the SaaS world and tech world because it's not the same. Nothing. You know. Uh
1: you know, Lonnie Smith, the, the then CEO of Intuitive, uh <clears throat> introduced me to a uh an investor named Ace Greenberg. And um he had a um uh, ace had a uh, a famous saying he hired PSDs, which uh they were poor, smart, with a deep desire to be rich. And uh and so I looked at a lot of a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, different type of people, but, um, you know, they all had the same thing that, you know, a lot of them grew up poor or, uh, you know, w- without a whole lot of resources, as, as I did on a family farm um, and uh, or grew up in a family business, uh, something where they had to work, you know, insane hours and, uh, and without a lot of money. And so they understood this was an opportunity unlike any other. And I think you look at those kind of people and the resilience, the work ethic, the pain tolerances I mentioned before, those are the kind of people that are, that are really successful. And, and so, um, you know, in this kind of an environment, there's people that are successful in different types of companies. And, um, and, and so, but in an early stage startup, uh, you know, it, it, it requires a, a certain level of commitment and, um, and a personality to be successful.
0: Oh, 100%. 100%. Well, you know, um, early and in intuitive, you know, one of the things I, I heard was, you know, would you say that intuitive started getting traction, like serious traction in the market, like around 0304? Yeah. So when that happened, um, you know, I, I heard stories that like a lot of times uh, a rep would walk into a hospital and they would say like, you know, where have you been? We've been waiting for an intuitive, like an intuitive rep to come by. And so obviously at that time, like it was still difficult to sell, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things is that there is so much pressure about hitting your number that like, I think your training lasted maybe a month, month and a half, correct? Six weeks. Six weeks. Okay. Yeah. Six weeks. Okay. And then, you know, and so a full, a full quarter is 12 weeks. So then after your training is done, you had half a quarter to hit your number. And if you didn't, you were out. Is that true?
1: No, that's, uh, <clears throat> that's urban legend. Oh, that's um, urban legend. <laughs>
0: It was what was it like two quarters? Well,
1: I, w- I would say this that you know if you look at um, you know there, there's some strong feelings about intuitive uh, you know on both ends of the spectrum people that think it's the greatest company in the world people that uh, that don't care for it at all and and, um, and I think that's uh, you know at some part um, you know good's and bad uh, th- this you know, I think we we decided on people very quickly. Uh, you know, did you have the the work ethic? Did you have the ability to articulate the value propositions? Did you have the ability to just continue to, even though they might have said, uh, you know, we we've been waiting for an intuitive rep. It was still really really hard to sell it in a time frame. And so, <laughs> on one hand, excuse me, we um, you know, we made decisions on people and said, you know, it's not gonna work. On the other hand. In a, we could have waited longer with people, we could have given them more resources and so I think that, that has led to people with some really strong feelings about intuitive and, um, and so, you know, given them, it's always nice when you can look back 10 years ago, you know, 20 years and say, well, I would have done that differently, but in the midst of it, where there's a tremendous pressure to, uh, to put up a financial result. And you have somebody that's uh, that's uh, you know not uh, as efficient and not as productive as other teammates, you tend to to make decisions uh, you know fairly decisively and quickly, and so that's kind of the wrap. But you know uh, to, to hit it the first quarter that's uh, th- that's urban legend. Urban, yeah.
0: I, I don't know, like I there's a lot of things that. Uh, The way that Intuitive operated in 2000s, along with many other companies that they can't do that these days, right? But I feel like, you know, for me recently, I was reading, I finished Walter Isaacson's uh, book on Elon Musk, Mm -hmm. um, who like revolutionized like car manufacturing, right? Not just like the electric car, just like how you manufacture a car and stuff. And there's a price you have to pay for that level of innovation. And it's not fun. Uh, And there's, you know, some things on on the professional side, it's like borderline abuse even, you know? Um, But that's like the price you pay. And I think that when you are, you know, people talk about creating new categories and disruptions like, you know, it's like this fun, exciting thing. It's all out war. It's very, it's like, it's not easy or fun. It's very, very brutal, you know, and usually even when a change is is good, people go into it like kicking and screaming, right?
1: Well, if you just look at intuitive from a different lens and say, you know, there's a, there's a finite pie of healthcare dollars. And um, and look at the transfer of wealth and the transfer of healthcare dollars from physician to physician, from hospital to hospital, from company to company started. And now you look at intuitives larger, significantly larger than Ethicon and significantly larger than COVIDian. And so those it's a finite pie of how much a hospital is gonna spend on surgical instruments. And so, uh, you know, there was a lot of people that were attacking us from every conceivable level.
0: Give us some examples of that, because, you know, one of the things that, again, when you come up, when you're trying to challenge the status quo, it's only not only the status quo you're challenging, but like the people who are making money off of the status quo, right? So, mm-hmm. what, what, were some, what was some of the, uh, the trench warfare like with, with Ethicon in the early days?
1: Very interesting. You know, I I can't attribute it to Ethicon or to anybody. I have my I have my opinions, but um, you know, there was a concentrated uh, a PR effort against robotics. There was Wall Street Journal articles about um, about complications and unproven technology, and and um, and you know, certainly uh, early on, you know, you look at the political and and financial impact that. An established company has on, uh, you know, the, the societies on ACS on uh, on uh, the urology societies, um, you know, they, they stay with the entrenched technology because the entrenched technology has the money to support their organization, and so you know there, you, we'd go to we go to symposiums and speeches where people would just say this is uh, you know this is malpractice if you use it, and so. Those are the type of things where there was just such a political element to it, um, and then of course you know the, people tried to bundle stuff and and you know bundle all the products together. There was all kinds of uh, you know and and you know it, really it's about the money. You know all the training centers you may have recalled centers of excellence that were out there. One, but those are funded by millions of dollars, and we uh, you know intuitive never really participated in that um, early on, and we had our own training center. And so, um, you know, we didn't we didn't donate millions and millions of dollars to hospitals. And so, um, you know, those entrenched technologies are always difficult to uh, to disrupt because there's a tremendous economic benefit, and it's usually couched in a clinical argument. Well, the, the new technology is not clinically. Uh, as adept or clinically proven, but really it's an, it, it's an economic argument. And, um, and so that was, th- those were some of the challenges we had. To
0: overcome. On the sales side, you know, there was a lot of uh, really uh, effective business development tactics. Like one of them, you know, the most famous one is, you know, you go and dem- demo the technology of surgeons and everything. Hospitals don't want to buy it. You just go to the competing hospital and say, "Hey, you know, if you acquire this robot, like these surgeons will bring over like twenty percent of your cases." Can you you kind of dive a little bit more into like what was the generation of that, um, you know, and and other other tactics and strategies, intuitive used in the early days to drive product adoption? So uh,
1: I'll give you two tools that um, that I I feel like you know I always am, am hesitant to say, you know, I did this or I did that because it was a team effort. There were so many people that, that were involved in this. But I'll give you um, two specific examples, personal examples from, from my experience. So, um, uh, you know, late 2000, early 2001, uh, I'm trying to sell systems into Houston. And, uh, and so it, we're in cardiac surgery. I, I go to, to Methodist, which was the DeBakey shop. And I go to the Cooley shop at St. Luke's, and so I, whenever I would fly to a new market, I would always call on two or three, um, two or three accounts at the same time, and not only because it was, you know, valuable use of my time, but because there was a competitive, um, a competitive vibe, like who's going to be first, and so, and and we would try to quantify what is the power. And what is the economic benefit of being first to market? And so if you look at the value, early value of intuitive, it was, there was a correlation between new technology, high tech and quality of care. So if you had the latest technology that nobody else had, your quality of care was better. And so you would get, uh, you expand your catchment area. There's a whole economic argument to that. And so I really, uh, I pushed that in myself. And as I started to manage people in the organization, that was an important part. And then um, I, uh, I spent probably eight or nine months um, uh, trying to sell these two hospitals and was told that uh, I was going to be fired if I didn't sell them by the end of the quarter. So it was my first time uh, being threatened to be fired at Intuitive. And um, I developed, I, I got an Excel spreadsheet And I listed every single thing that I thought that needed to be done um, to sell these robots. And uh, I put an X on each one of them. And that's the genesis, if you've ever heard of the Xbox, Uh, that's where it came from. Um, And uh, so I, and I realized that I had missed three or four steps. And so we started to use that tool, um, you know, pretty religiously. and so uh, those are just some of the tools. I, you know, as I became a, um, a director and a VP, and there was a tremendous amount of pressure to, um, to uh, hit the number from a capital perspective, uh, I started a thing called a deal rip. And, um, and so I got, my, uh, I got my ASMs together and I said, sell me on why you think they're going to make a decision on your timeline. And and so what have you done? We would use the Xbox. We would say, and you know, and there it comes back to hope is not a strategy. Like I really want you to do it. And sales reps have a uh, have a world view that whatever they're selling is the most important thing. And uh, an administrator, of course, has multiple things they're working on. And so, uh, you know, you had to have impending events. You had to have compelling reasons why people would act on your timeline versus their timeline. And so those deal rips served as a litmus test to, for me to go back to, to Jerry and to Lonnie and say, this is how many we're going to sell for the quarter. And uh, and so that became part of their culture. And I think a part of the culture of a lot of companies in the industry.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm definitely, uh, you know, the Xbox, I'm definitely familiar with and I've heard like different versions of it, you know, so I don't know, like, how exactly, you know, like it all got brought together. Did you work with anybody else on that or like, uh, you know, so like there's that. And then there's, there's up. D- D- like I won't mention the name, but like for up, D- there's somebody who was like not even early intuitive and they were like taking some credit. For, I'm like, dude, don't even start. Like he had nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: so funny. I was sitting uh, w- with a company. Um, I won't mention them. And, uh and they were, uh, I was, uh, I was doing a consulting gig and A uh, a sales rep stood up and said, "I have a tool that uh, that that I've used and and developed, and uh, I think we ought to we ought to use it." And so they uh, introduced the Xbox uh, Xbox, and I just laughed. I was like, "Hmm, I remember doing that in 2001." (laughs) And um, but you know, like any good tool, uh, you know, I I may have been the first person to do it and developed it, but people have taken it and and become even within early intuitive, we, we modified it and made it much better. And I'm sure that people have, have, uh, integrated it into their businesses and, and improved it over time. But the, the origination was when I was trying to sell Methodist and, and St. Luke's, uh, th- that's how I, that's how I first used it.
0: Got, you know, the other one is deal Rip. you know, and, um, I actually did, um, you know, I have a concept, uh, of, uh, which I did once this year with Joseph othment and, uh, and Sean Sear, which is Deal Rip Live. Um, I want to do more of those. The only problem... So the, the concept was that uh, we get reps to submit real deals and then we, you know, strip them of the company, of the hospital, everything. So it's like anonymized. Right. Um, but when I was trying to do more of them, like, it's just really hard to get more people to submit it. So like, um, you know, I might try, you know, an attempt this year. I, I just want to... It's kind of like an like ESPN game day analysis is, you know, I just want to make this industry fun. But deal rep, I feel like, is such an important thing. And uh, I remember when I left Missouri, I went to other companies and they didn't really do that. And I was like, you know, and even now with my own program, like I would talk, I'll talk to reps and territory managers and I'm like, well, who are you reviewing your deals with? And they're like, well, just me and my manager. I'm like, that's it. I was like, well, how are you, you know, like, how are you like stress testing these deals? And I feel like that's such an important thing. It's, it's like a very, uh, um, spiritual experience what what were some of the most iconic deal rips uh that come to mind from from intuitive
1: well my very first one uh was probably 2003 2004 the very first one i did was in atlanta and um i think there were six of us in the room so this is super early intuitive we're
0: just remember who was in the room by any chance
1: um I'd have to, I think maybe Mike Morawski was there. Was one of the early ones. Henry Charlton, what uh, was a what uh, was an area sales manager?
0: Yeah, I I connected with Henry. He's, he's great. We've been trying to get him on the show, but the the stars haven't aligned yet. So we'll, we'll hopefully have him on soon.
1: He's a he's a phenomenal salesperson and manager, and and uh, has done has done great things with his career. Um, but I guess let me back up on the on the deal for a second and just say you know. I think there's a couple of, of purposes. Um, one is you know, the, the power of intellectual and experiential diversity. And so when you have unrelated people with different life experiences and different methodologies look at the same business problem, they come at it from different ways. You know, Chris Sells and I are a great example. We are great friends but, you know, and both highly successful, but we approach the business totally differently. I was very process oriented. You do it the same way or, 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 you know, do the same things very effectively. He was an artist, you know, and, and, and probably one of the, the best capital equipment salespeople that I've, that I've ever been associated with. And so if you bring those two differing views together and you say, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Whereas you and your manager probably have the same view of how to get things done. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is that under high pressure environments, most people revert to, I want it to happen so so badly, and and I need it to happen that I convinced myself that it will happen. And and so that and and what happens is they say, we're gonna get it, we're gonna get it, we're gonna get it, right until the last week. And they say, Oh, we're not gonna get it. And so you surprise the organization and one of my management mottos has always been, I'll, I'll take good news, I'll take bad news, but I don't want to be surprised. And so the deal rip was, was a way to really get grounded in reality. So what what you want as a sales rep or a manager or, or CEO, doesn't matter, it's what the customer wants, and it's the customer's timeline. And so the art of sales is trying to figure out how to make your timeline the customer's timeline. And and if you can meld those two together, you're going to be highly successful. And so that was the purpose of the deal rip. They did sometimes, you know, we, we integrated an element of, I suppose, fun would be uh, was the initial intent, uh, like a gladiator vote. Uh, do you remember the movie Gladiator where they voted?
0: I, I integrated the same thing into deal rip live because it just makes it people people want to be entertained,
1: right? And uh, and so, but you know, the interesting thing is when you have a group of super type a highly uh competitive people and you get voted down i had people storm out of the room like you watch i'm going to show you i'm like perfect uh you know and and you know at that point my job was to provide them all the resources that they would need to make it happen so but we had some we we had a rep um in the the northwest uh, uh, that got up and was so nervous he passed out in front of the room, and um, so there was all kinds of all kinds of stuff that happened. And, and uh, but it was it was a great environment. We would do it twice a quarter, and uh, and I think people really understood and, and started to, to learn how to sell a big ticket capital.
0: That's amazing. Um, what I got to dig a little deeper. We got to get in some juicy stories here. What tell us some more. Iconic, memorable deal reps, and you know, so like, I remember being in a deal rep where a guy was going through his deal, and I, like, I couldn't tell if he was. And you know, uh, when I was at Missouri, I, I carried the bag for a <sighs> year, and, a half and I moved into I moved into corporate and became the U.S. marketing manager. So I would, you know, help organize the deal reps. I would be mainly in the back of the room, just like observing and listening. And I was a young kid; I was like 27, 28 years old. And I just remember one guy, uh, like he was on the verge of either tears or passing out because it, it, it's really intense. And for those who are like wondering, like, what's the big deal? The thing with deal rip is that like aside from going through an Xbox approach, you have to check off like things are needed with the deal. Like, do you have a clinical champion? Do you have a timeline? Do you have all these things? You are opening like your business up to the entire room of your peers, your boss, your boss's boss, the marketing team, like everybody. So it's like really intense. It's really, really intense. And I think that it'll expose every weakness you have. Like if you have a weakness of getting too excited about deals, if you have a weakness of being too pessimistic, like whatever it is, right? What, or some, what were some other deal rips where I, I think what I'm looking for is borderline entertaining deal rips, but that, that there's a lesson in there.
1: So one of the, uh, as a manager, um, you know, one of the, the, uh, the goals that, uh, that's good to have is that if you can develop a culture where your organization becomes self-policing and, uh, so you don't, uh, you know, it's kind of the players only meeting in the NFL, you know, they're a self-policing organization. You don't need coaches. You don't need managers to come in there. And so probably my, and I won't get into to too many specifics, but I would say the most entertaining ones were when people uh, lied in front of their, uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, cool. stretched the truth.
0: What did they, what did they lie about? Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm holding you to what you said. What did they lie? Like some examples of things they lie about. And the reason why I say this is because, salespeople at some point start to believe their own BS well, they do. and it's, it's dangerous to the organization because again, it sets a precedent of how to think. And if you don't, you know, squash that out, you, you have other reps who start doing that and, and, and proliferating, uh, uh, proliferating that behavior. Right. So, so what are some examples?
1: So, uh, probably the, 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 most lively ones were, uh, so the, the, the format was this, you would come up and, and, um, And let me let me just back up a second. I I agree with you, Omar, on one thing. The the most difficult thing to do is to open your business to your peers and to role play with your peers, because, you know, you can fudge stuff in front of customers. They don't know, you know, you're selling them. But when you're doing it in front of somebody that knows it as well as you do, and you you don't quite, you you know, you, you make a mistake. I mean, that's really intimidating an intimidating environment. And so the deal were probably the most entertaining, the entertaining ones were I'd sit on the back row. And really my role at that point had come down to like, okay, I'm gonna save somebody up front from themselves because instead of the, the format was that they would come up and have you know five to 10 minutes to present their deal. These are all the things that all the, the core activities that I've done to drive the business forward. Here are the core activities that I have scheduled, and here's why I think it'll it'll uh, sell by the end of the quarter. And you know, in in the beginning, people would be polite, and then we would uh, the the deliverable we would give three activities that uh, that they should do uh, by the time we would meet six weeks later. And if they had done those three things, and then uh, you know they would have a best chance of to sell it. And then we would gladiator vote. Well, there were times when somebody would come up and, and particularly on the second one, where they had not done the three things, the three core activities, and they would try to lie about it. And, uh, and like, oh, I couldn't get to them or they weren't available. And then you have a self-policing organization that just starts to rapid fire questions to those people. And that's why, you know, sometimes I would be like, okay, time out, or, or, uh, you know, this is like, uh, you know, Throwing uh, Christians to the lions in, in the Coliseum.
0: <laughs> what, what were the three core activities?
1: It could be anything. It could be impending events. It could be a starting a red line. It could, you know, people would be like, here's a great question that would come from a dealer. People would say, for sure, I give it 90% chance. And so we would ask a question, what is their contract process? And like, who has to sign it? Who has to review it? And there's six weeks to go in the quarter, and it's an eight-week process. So first of all, how do you reconcile that difference? And then, what's your plan to accelerate the uh, the, the legal process to get this signed? And um, and so it's not all about just clinical uh, support and and being in the OR. It's about being in the executive suites and driving it forward. And so those are the the kind of questions that would come out, and and really we would push people.
0: Yeah, and I think um, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a lost art. It's it. There's better technology and tools available today than back then, right? I mean, just like something as simple as like you know HubSpot, where you can you know you have a pipeline, you can have content. You know, it's very easy to to have like great tools. I mean, a s great sponsor of this podcast is Clary. So Clary has like revenue intelligence. They plug into your CRM and help you predict pipeline. I feel like one of the things that uh, a lot of novices don't do is think more about pipeline velocity. And how do you take like, for example, three meetings and make them into one? Why do you think reps struggle with that?
1: You know, I think that, um, and, and that is actually so funny, you said that's one of the core tenets of of early intuitive is how do you consolidate meetings? If you can take three into one, you're going to hyper accelerate the business. And so I would say that, most reps, um, come in off on their back foot a little bit, like, um, you know, I, I would say a lot of reps are not comfortable in the, in the C-suite. Uh, and so that they're, um, they're like, okay, like, uh, let me give you a specific example. So they're talking to the CEO and they say, well, like who would be, uh, the, the, the key person to lead this and. They're, uh, they say, well, the VP of marketing is really going to, to lead this initiative with the hospital. Okay, so an average rep says, okay, uh, and then I'm going to go and find the VP of, uh, of marketing. A good rep would be like, okay, uh, could you introduce me? Could you, you know, introduce me on, on VP? A great rep, some of the early Mike Hodgkiss, one of the greatest sales reps I've ever met in my entire career, would say can we either walk down to that person's office or can we call them on the phone and bring them here and that's the essence of taking three meetings or three activities into one and um, and so if you continually do that and and you use your champions to to try to hyper accelerate the process and while I'm here um, you know I'm going to to try to meet as many people and drive it forward and I would ask myself even when I was a sales rep Um, I asked myself, you know, did I drive the business forward today or did I just like check one of the boxes? And the the days that I really drove the business forward, I had such a sense of accomplishment and such a sense that I was that I was really moving, moving things forward in a direction that I wanted. And so I think that was uh, that was one of the things that I've always used in my career.
0: Yeah, so I actually had uh, the pleasure of working with Mike, Mike Hotch, Hotchkiss back in the day at uh, at Missouri. He, he's a great, great sales exec. Um, he's also hilarious because he's uh, – I think he's – is he from Philadelphia?
1: Uh, unfortunately, they're all Eagles fans up there. All <laughs> all yeah, Mike. I still like him. I still like I him. Mike, but he's got
0: the best accent. And me being from Texas, like when I hear these Northeast accents are so interesting. I just remember that one time um, – and again, Mike. Uh, uh, the, I want to ask you some stories about Mike. He had a, a, phenom- a like, an epic story out of Intuitive about turning around the territory. But one of the funnier ones I remember is that, like, uh, you know, sometimes when you take, uh, you know, surgeons to dinner or something, they get a little out of control, you know, on like what they order, and like you can't say like at dinner, like, oh, don't order that, right? And I remember uh, our account <laughs> was on the phone with Mike, and I hear, a speaker and. And she was just like Mike. What the hell is this? Like you know, what? Like the, we, how are we going to reimburse the bill? And I just heard Mike going, "Hey, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like they, 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 they were out of control. I couldn't control them. <laughs> like, sorry, this is probably a bad accent, but it was amazing. But Mike, uh, when he came to Mazor, so here, here's my experience in Mazor with intuitive salespeople. There's two kinds: the kind like Mike that came in and and succeeded and did well, and the other kind who were kind of ra- riding the coattails of intuitive surgical." And they thought they were really good, and they came to Missouri and started from ground zero, and they were not good, and they got throttled like bad. So Mike, at in of the story I heard about Mike was that he he was he had a real bad territory and just turned it around. Can you tell us some some like war stories about Mike?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you. I, I, there's one in particular that is probably the most. Uh, I mean, it really set for me the litmus test of what like world class capital sales reps are all about. So I get a call um from uh, from Mike said hey would you fly up to Philly and uh, and help me close this deal and uh and I'm like sure so I hop on an airplane and I forget what hospital it was but I go up there and I you know I'm thinking okay we're going to negotiate with the uh, w- with the, the CEO we're going to figure it out and I have lots of stories about how I would do that with uh, with, with sales reps I get in there the, Mike has 18 signed letters from physicians that they're going to go to the competing hospital if the CEO uh, doesn't doesn't buy it So you know the close was like tink, you know he had done everything and so you know you realize when you have somebody that's that talented you, there's no closing it, it, like he did all of the advanced work and it closes itself because at that point, a surgeon or a ceo excuse me understands that in order to uh to achieve his or hers business model they need this technology and and so of course they're going to do it and it just comes down to are you going to do it now or are you going to do it later and so that's the only question that that uh that you're answering and so i was so impressed i remember getting back on the airplane thinking. What I could do in my career if I had thirty people like that, and, and I did, and um, and some of the some of the most amazing, uh, you know, capital sales. Bo Adams, I don't know if you know Bo in in the southeast. Phenomenal.
0: Yep. I know. I think you
1: know. he just took a VP of sales job today uh, with Dan Carl, but um, just a just a phenomenal, relentless Mike Morawski. I could go on and on and on about you know. Uh, about people that um, were, were just phenomenal salespeople, believed in what they were doing, had a process, and executed on it. And, and um, so that was that was a great time to, to be part of the organization.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. What you know, what, what were the things you because okay, roughly how many how many salespeople did you hire at Intuitive, roughly yourself?
1: Well, I I, uh, I think I stopped interviewing everybody that came into the organization. In maybe two thousand and eight, two thousand nine. Up until that point, I interviewed everybody.
0: In your career, is it is it safe to say you've probably hired, managed, mentored like hundreds, maybe a little wow. over a thousand? Okay, so for you to say that, like Mike is one of the one of the best capital salespeople that you that you know, w- w- what makes you say that? Like, what what is what is the uh, what is the criteria and the persona? That that kind of makes that person. Well, he
1: melds um, an incredible work ethic, um, an attention to detail, a, a clinical expertise um, with a process, and so um, it, it, it's half art, half science. And uh, you know, first of all, he's a personality that people want to buy from. That that always helps. Um, but he would uh, he would take the deal rep you know the the capital sales process and he would execute on it so flawlessly and he had a tremendous work ethic he always had a pipeline that was amazing and so you know one of the things that happens with sales reps is that they get so hyper focused and it happened to me you get so so hyper focused on a, a particular sale or a particular market that you forget to prospect and so you come into the end of the quarter and you may have sold something but you look at your pipeline you're like oh man this is going to be ugly and that's the whole hit miss hit miss cycle and the thing about Mike is that he would uh, he would always balance and have a, a full pipeline every quarter and that's really unusual for people to be able to manage uh, sales that are different uh, in different places in the cycle and so when you're when you're involved in a capital equipment sale, uh, you know, towards the end, it, it gets, it gets pretty exciting. And, and you're, you know, you're going to get this done. Imagine taking time out of your day to go cold call somebody who's giving you the same objections. Ah, I'll never buy that. I'll never do that. I mean, imagine the discipline it takes to do that, because you know that you have to have the the early funnel to fill your pipeline. And I think that's, uh, you know, one of the things that distinguished him and, and others uh, that, I mean, Chad Zaring's another one, just, just another
0: amazing, guy to work with,
1: just absolutely phenomenal um, capital equipment sales rep. And, um, and so those are, those are some of the things uh, that, that really distinguished
0: him. What were some things, you know, when you were at Intuitive, the people that you inter interfaced with the most, I believe it was Lonnie and Jerry, correct? What, what were some things that you learned, learned from them? You
1: know, I'll say, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, Jerry is one of the, um, you know, the big influences in my career. And um, I just told my daughter, I'll, I'll just show you, I, I can I tell you so many different things, but, um, you know, certainly the intensity and, um, and just the, the, the willingness to say, we are not going to lose, that we are going to hit this number. And and to put uh, put the process and the work ethic around it, but you know, my daughter, I have two daughters, uh, three daughters in college, but two at the same school, and they're both in executive uh, positions with their sorority, and and um, so they had they they called me last week, and uh, and they asked me for some advice on what they could do, and and so one of the one of my children wanted to like just just let it uh, you know, work, work its way through. And Jerry always had a saying, and I I told them this, I truly believe it. Like great, great execs never pass up an opportunity to lead. And, uh, you know, so everybody, most people just lean back and, and say, let's just see how this works out. And, and great executives always take the opportunity to, to be a leader. And so, uh, I gave them that advice and said, I learned that. 30 years ago, 25 years ago from Jerry McNamara. And, uh, and there's a, a, a lot more, but that's one that just came, just happened a week or two ago. And, and so I think it's one of the uh, central core themes of my career is that I've, I've always tried to be a leader. I've, I've never passed up an opportunity to be a leader if, if it presented itself to me.
0: That's it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, for, I, I'm very fortunate to have, like, I gotten to, you know, meet Jerry really just through the phone and zoom a few times and everything. He's actually been very helpful as a, just to give me some advice and, you know, and thoughts on, on, on what I'm doing. Um, I never met Lonnie. I don't Is Lonnie still alive?
1: Yeah. Yeah. What, retired, tired, but, but alive.
0: it. that's great. Oh. I don't know if that's possible, but hopefully one day I'll, I'll hopefully get him on the show. There's some people that just not, it's just not it'll never happen. I, I think there's a lot of people out posting to that they, they you know live like kind of quiet private lives. They want to keep it that way. But one thing I would hear about Lonnie was just like his relentless pursuit of perfection, and then more importantly, like the competitive nature of like we're we're gonna go for all the market, right? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, certainly one of the more intense people, um, I think he softened, uh, you know, after I left, uh, you know, towards the end. But one of the most intense managers, um, and I certainly had my disagreements, uh, you know, w- with Lonnie and Jerry about you know, uh, how to treat customers, how to treat people and, and some of the business decisions. But I will say this, that, um, you know, if you look at my professional uh, maturation process, kind of professionally growing up um, in intuitive has been invaluable to me because, uh, you know, Lonnie was so fiscally disciplined and, uh, and so financially on top of it and, and so process-oriented. Um, maybe, not as, um, maybe not as people-oriented as, as myself or others, but really understand this is what we have to do and, and not only from a, a commercial um, standpoint, but also from an R&D and a forward thinking. I mean, just to give you, a, I'll, I'll just give you one thing about what an amazing forward thinker he was. He put, I wish I would have listened to him, by the way, when I tell you this story. Um, I used to get intuitive options and, uh, and I would call them Confederate dollars. Uh, because they were useless. Uh, I mean, I, I never, I joined in 2000. I never had an option.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just want to, I want to put it into context for everybody because I was pulling it up and, and looking at it. So like um, intuitive from, let's see, 2000. So 2000, the stock was trading at like two bucks. Yep. In 2009, it was like up to 11 or 12 bucks. So like, yeah, most of most of the time that, you know, intuitive in the early 2000s, the the stock was trading, you know, at it around like seven to 10 bucks. So not much, right? Not a big market cap.
1: I'll tell you a quick story about that. So I won, um, in 2001, um, a, uh, somebody else won a, won the, the director of the year award and they gave him a Panerai watch. And, uh, and I was like, wow, you know, I've always wanted a Panerai watch. So, So the next year, two thousand two, I think I win MVP or something. Who knows? And I get up to the stage. I'm like, I tell my wife I'm going to get a Panerai. I'm all excited, and they hand me an envelope. I'm like, what is this? He goes, well, we gave you we gave you options. I'm like, I don't want options. I want to watch. And um, and so I bought a house with those options, by the way. But um, so fast forward, like four years later, three or four years later, and. I'm taking over the, um, I'm thinking I'm a regional VP, I'm taking over as US VP of sales, and I win the regional VP. I walk up on stage and Jerry McNamara says to me, you do realize this is the last award of your career. Like you're moving into a management role that they're, they, don't give, they don't give awards to people like us. And, uh, and he said, so this is the last one, I bought you a Panerai watch. I'm like, I don't want a Panerai, I want the options. And uh, so it was, uh, it, it, I still have that Penner I watch, but yeah, I used to call them Confederate dollars and, and uh, they, it was, you know, it was difficult to imagine that, that the stock was going to take off. And Lonnie showed me a, a spreadsheet that he had done. This is maybe 2005, four, five, six, something like that, where our stock would be $750 a share in the next seven or eight years. And I was like, you've, you've lost your mind. And, uh, but he, he knew what was going to happen. He, he could, he could figure out that the market would respond if, uh, people continued to execute at that level. And, and, uh, just a, just a great forward thinker and a, uh, and a, and a great manager. I think that the lessons I've learned from him uh, have just been invaluable to me.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. And I think, um, Again, it's interesting when you kind of look look back on the decisions we make and how how we did things. I, one something I didn't ask, like in 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 the two thousands, how how when you were at Intuitive, roughly like you're, how old were you? you were in your like twenties, thirties.
1: Um, I was in my
0: uh, mid thirties. Mid thirties, got it, got it. So, um, well, uh, one of the other things that like uh, I heard a lot about uh, Intuitive was, um, you know the the importance of like clinical helping to sell capital what what was that like you know because I think a lot of times um, salespeople they they kind of get this misconception of like great salespeople are just great closers. Singular one time event where you go to go into negotiation and close and you know, as you kind of pointed out with Mike Hotchkiss, which is like it's a whole like sales is more of a it's a it's a process, right? And developing as much momentum so that it closes itself. Right. What were some of the levers that like you you know, salespeople back then were taught to use, aside from just them turning, you know, multiple meetings into one, et cetera? Can you kind of go more into details on that on those processes? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, I think that all, this is a, another thing that Lonnie said to me early on that I never believed. He was like, it, there will be a day when uh, people will use this so often that, that we'll give them the robot because they'll use it so often. And so uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a guy named Doug McClung. Um, uh, Doug Still, Doug McClung. No, C-C-L-U-N-G. Phenomenal, phenomenal guy. Um, He I I think he's probably been there. Oh, I don't know. I mean, 22, 23 years. Um, And he started as one of my very first CSRs. And um, he I, I think he had seven states and four robots and the robot for the quarter. Did five or six cases, so each robot did one case, and he would fly. He would fly around to cover cases, and I think he's the a clinical VP for him now. So I've been there a long time, seen seen the company come from from startup to where it is today. But so early on, when there's very little utilization, it's hard to it, it's hard to to build a story, a credible story. That this has clinical value if no one's using it, and so if you look at, I mean, we, we talk about the excitement and, and the, the, the amazing ability of uh, of ASMs, uh, you know, the, the capital equipment sales force, but it's really the clinical sales reps that drove that business forward, and that's uh, and that's having the personality and the force of, uh, of belief and the force of personality to go into the OR. And work people through, uh, you know, all of the problems. The fiddle factor that we talked about previously, where you know, I, there, there, I'll tell you a story. Um, th- there were cases done. I'll tell you two stories. There, there was a there were cases done early on where there was an alarm. Uh, it's called a sensor mismatch. So the robot that the computer thinks that the instruments that are a certain place and they're not, and so it's a sensor mismatch, and it would have an alarm. And the sales rep would sit there the entire case and silence the alarm. Every 10 seconds, it would go off and silence it. And um, there's a, uh, you know, you you have to be a certain personality to be able to do that. I was in a case uh, in New York City with a physician named Mike Argenziano, great guy, and. and so uh, we start the case, and the right monitor goes blank. And so he does the case through one eye, and um, and so and a super skilled person. But the rep kind of like talked him through that and calmed him down. Said we can still do this. You can see everything. It's and and so it was. It takes a special person, and some of the CSRs that I've known over the years are just uh, are just amazing clinical, really, truly like one of the most some of the most clinically proficient reps that that are in the industry.
0: Can you name name some? Because again, uh, the reason why I ask is this is another area that I think a lot of people um, undervalue, which is you know selling disruptive technology is important, right? But like the the job. The job kind of starts after you sell, which is, you know, you have to drive utilization of the technology because if you don't do that, right, you have an underutilized piece of capital equipment and people talk about that. These surgeons don't go to conferences and like hide that. They'll be like, yeah, we bought, we bought XYZ technology. It's just like collecting dust in the closet. You know who who are some great clinical reps that come to mind, and and what made them great.
1: Well, I think that what made them great. I mean, uh, you know, somebody who's done both sides of the business, John Brentnall, um You know, also in Philly. Um, you know, I, I I've got to go back through my old memories and and remember some of the individual contributors. Um, but I mean, and you know, I, you look at you mentioned Joseph Authement, Nick. Uh, you know, Justin, his brother. Um, you know, it's, it's also been a, been a clinical sales rep, or I think he's moved up, uh, you know, and for a long time, super clinical, but I'd have to go back through my list and, and, uh, and it'd be like old hour day. I'd I'd be like, oh, I remember that person. Um, Um, Tom Higgins is a, is a great person, like a really great rep. But I think what made them, uh, made CSR special is first of all, the relational aspect. You know, if you're a capital rep and you're talking to people that like you and know you and are comfortable with you, uh, this is early intuitive, you're not selling anything. You always had to be in the people that didn't have it. And, of course, that's changed because most people have robots now. And so, but uh, early on, you had to always be talking to new prospects, whereas a clinical sales rep had to to live in these hospitals. And so if there's an adverse outcome or the, the robot doesn't work or... They set it up wrong, you know you, you can't be like, well you know what I'm gonna go away for a week or two and let things calm down you got to go back in there the next day and uh and so you have to be technically proficient clinically proficient um I think that's uh that's really uh you know a little bit different than the one time capital sale more difficult I think there are personality types that fit that i didn't uh, i I was in clinical sales for a while, but I definitely fit the more capital sales um personality than somebody that that wanted to be in the same account or same group of accounts every day that was that was not my personality but it's a, an amazing people i'm gonna i'm gonna have to look up uh some names no,
0: that yeah, I- don't worry. You, you'll be back you'll be you'll be back on the show for sure no and i think um you know it's help it's helpful to put that into context and understand and again like um yeah, I appreciate you spending some some time with us, but I want to wrap up with like a few few more questions and stories for you before we let you go. Um, so when you look back on your career specifically, um, do you have any? I don't like to think about regrets, but like, do you have any things that you look back on and you say like, I could have done that differently, or you know, or, or it served as like uh, you know, I think the t- the times that we grow professionally are are from from pain. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like I had plenty of those moments where at Missouri, I think, I don't know, there was a period I think had that had it overlapped, I would have been fired. But there was like a month where one week I royally pissed off Chris sells Mm -hmm. and then a week or two later, I did something else, some other stupid things and made some mistakes. And I royally pissed off Chris Prentice, had those overlapped, I think, you know, and I think at the time, what was funny was, um, One had to calm the other one down. And then, like, a few weeks later, it was like the reverse. You know, so I had it overlap, like, I would have been fired. But when you look back at your career, like, what what were some of those things at Intuitive where, like, it served as a point of pain that made you grow and changed you for the better?
1: Well, of course. You know, I try not to, and I think that, uh, you know, this is really important for people. I I try not to indulge in regret because, Mm -hmm. I mean, I do. You know, it's something that will grab you and, and take a hold of you laying in bed. And, you know, I, I, I wrote a, a, an article about wishing and, you know, the word wish, it, you know, transcends time. It's past, present and future. And, um, but, you know, uh, you can wish for something to happen, but at the same time, you can, you know, in, in, in your quiet time going, oh, I wish I hadn't said that, or I wish I hadn't done that. And um, And so I try to use those moments as uh, you know, how am I going to be a better person? How am I going to be a more effective manager? So I would say that, um, you know, the things I look back on, I, I would say a couple things. One is I wish I'd been more patient with people. I wish I would have balanced the, the uber competitive, um, the uber uh, pressure packed environment um, with uh, being more patient with people. And so the people that were in the sweet spot of intuitive that that's not where you hear the, uh, you know, churn and burn or, you know, a, a super environment. They loved it. It was the people that were coming up the learning curve, that were trying to figure it out. And, and uh, you know, I think we could have been more, uh, if, you know, we could have been more gracious and patient with those people. And I think I've learned that over the course of my career. I had a, I have a dear friend that, that worked for Intuitive that I was having a drink with and told me something that just resonated with me one of our uh, one of our management uh, sayings was be hard on the business and easy on the people and <clears throat> excuse me i think there's a level of professional maturity where that makes sense like okay i can i, I can build my people but i can be really demanding on on what we're going to accomplish and i think that's if you talk to my direct reports they i think that's what you would come back with like Okay, we we were going to get it done, but we laughed a lot. We had a great time. Lifelong friends. Our wives knew each other, um, but I think that concept is really difficult for a frontline first time manager. That that differentiation. So as we put that out there, it was just hard on the people, and and so the the um, the environment I created in my group uh, didn't filter down through the organization all the time, and. And, um, and then i give you one last one. You know, I, I think that this is a great, you know, for, for your listeners that are in, um, you know, are in bigger positions where, where they have, uh, you know, big organizations. I think um, it's easy to get, um, to get hyper-focused on what you think of yourself. And, uh, and, you know, you have everybody. I don't care who you are. Everybody has doubts or uncertainties about, you know, if they're doing the right thing or if the business is going to achieve its goals. And so sometimes I would be uh, more withdrawn and just like kind of kind of concentrating on the things I had to do. And and so it comes across to individual contributors and people that don't know me as unapproachable and uh, and, you know, like standoffish or aloof. And, uh, I think great leaders always look at themselves through the lens of how people see them. And you want, uh, you want a, a friendly, uh, outgoing, upbeat leader. And, um, and I think I've learned that over the course of time, you know, managing people for a long, long time. I think that's, uh, that's one of my learnings that I wish that I had known 25 years ago. And, uh, and in my own group, I was, um, you know, I I was positive and fun, but not always to a larger, to a larger group. And so uh, you, you kind of people perceive you a different way than you perceive yourself. And so, um, but, you know, overall, you know, you can't spend too much time on that. You you have to spend time on saying, you know, for me, you know, 35 years in this industry, how do I, how do I teach as many people as possible? How do I give people some of the lessons I've learned? And, and say, you know, I made that mistake, and I can help you, uh, I can help you avoid that. And, uh, and so that's where I I derive my satisfaction from these days. But it's, uh, it's been a, an amazing industry to be in, and and, uh, and nothing but a pure joy.
0: Yeah, no, Dev, and I appreciate you sharing that. I think, uh, you know, uh, it's hard, it's hard to strike the balance, right? Yeah. You know, because, you know, it's, um, I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, because I'm a new father and, you know, my kid, my kid can barely talk. So like, I'm, I'm nobody to be like, but at least sharing from my experience, it's like, it's very hard to balance the, you know, strike a balance between like being approachable and fun and everything. But at the same time, like, actually I'll, I'll make a, I'll give, I'll give you a great example is the relationship that I think, uh, striking that balance as a parent is similar to being like a great leader. And since like, for example, I'm 37 years old, I'm a grown man. Um, and so, I have a great relationship with my father right we We have fun we we golf together like, but he 's not my buddy he 's still my father, and so there 's a line that i don 't cross like even to this day right. you know, and I just know that and I think um, you know may, you know a good example because by the time he got to Missouri, he had you know been through intuitive and, and you know, and and many things, but like Chris sells, I felt like was a great example of that where as a leader, and I, I see Chris Sells almost like I have a great father, but he's he was like a second father figure to me. Mm-hmm. But I think Sells he struck struck this balance where he was very approachable. You never felt embarrassed to go to him with like I'm struggling with this, etc. You know, he's like a character out of a movie. Like he's very inspiring, but at the same time, like you had your act together when you're around him. Like it, it was a very weird thing. It was almost like you feel relaxed and comfortable with him, but at the same time, you're like on your toes and you you make sure everything's buttoned up. And again, it's, it's very hard to strike a bounce. And even somebody like Chris sells, um, wasn't perfect. You know, nobody is, I think, but I think at the end of the day, uh, I think to, to accomplish great things in business. And again, this is me studying, you know, the Elon Musk's of the world and Steve jobs and everything. It. It requires like a level of discipline and rigor and intensity that most people aren't willing to do. And I think that there's a genetic component mm-hmm. to this. You know, because I think if you go back thousands of years ago, I think you'll appreciate this. You know, there are people who are genetically wired where they they could get by with three hours of sleep a night, four hours of sleep. And those are the people who are guards. In in our current society today, there are people who are like extremely high testosterone. Those are the people who go into Marines. We need people like that. I think the same thing in, in – uh, in, in the in business, like there are programmers and engineers who worked at Apple, who can just work, grind themselves, and that, that's all they wanted to do. Are there other people who can, I think, it's just finding those right people and then plugging them in, or I guess as sales would like to say, like finding the right place on the bus for them. You know, that's
1: right. You know, I think um, you know the, the the Elon Musk story where he's flying uh, to Europe with his family for vacation, and they have to move the Twitter servers
0: oh my god it's one of my favorite let's let's talk about that yeah so he was so so share that story well i'll play i'll play some color comics so, so you did you read uh his new the book or did you okay let's talk about that that's one of my that's an example of like that's a different that's a different phenotype you know uh,
1: and, and certainly uh you know just for your audience in no way in any shape or form, am I drawing any parallels between myself and Elon Musk? Um, but I would say that when you get into a, a situation where you're just going to use your force of personality to make it happen, and and sometimes that's uh, you have to you have to go and be personally involved. So he's flying, you know, in a jet with his family to on a
0: holiday, family holidays. with a couple of friends,
1: right? <laughs> the, the servers, I think, are in Seattle, and they can't move them. The Twitter servers, they can't move them, and so he turns the jet around and flies uh, w- with all these people on the jet that are going on vacation, and and goes and basically moves these servers himself. And and,
0: uh, and rents a he rents a car, packs everybody in because just while on the plane, like I think people in Seattle, the people running the server server uh the company that that housed him they're like we can't do it and on the thing he just had a, a, you know for them he has this these surge moments where he's like that's bs we can move it turns it around packs his family in, and even like he he like crawls through the air air air,
1: air ducts and does air, it, unhooks them himself it's,
0: and uh, starts moving them and then like again this is why i i get excited about uh, a lot of the intuitive sorry that's my son in the background um intuitive stories is that like for him and his brother, when they were trying to move, they went and like found some guys at Home Depot and paid them cash, like ten k cash, to help them like get some U hauls and move these things. Yeah. So you I'll know what I mean?
1: My, um, I'll tell you my intuitive, um, my intuitive moment like that um, <clears throat> a little bit. So uh, I think maybe two thousand and two, maybe two thousand and three, um, uh, as I recall that the capital number on the street was. Uh, 12 or 13 units and uh with one week to go we had one unit installed and no pipeline except for hca and um and i had uh, I, I won't tell you the whole story here but i had spent a long time working on on hca and and had parlayed uh, some sales calls into a meeting with jack bovander the ceo and, uh, when I test drove him, he said, we'll buy 10. And, uh, I was like, wow, okay. So, you know, there's a long way between the CEO saying, we're going to buy 10 and actually doing it. And, um, and so I, uh, I negotiated this deal uh, to Jerry McNamara's credit. He let me negotiate it. And, um, and so it's the last week of the quarter and. Part of our deal is to, to do this deal for 12 units, you have to take them this quarter. And they say no. And so I walk out into the into the hallway, Jerry's in Europe. And I said, good news, bad news. We We got the contract, they'll sign it, but they won't take them until next week. And he said, I pay you to get the job done. I want them done. And when I'm installed this week, call me back when you got it done and hung up on me. And so I walked back in there. I mean, this is a, you know, like it's the biggest sale in the history of intuitive to that point. And I say, no deal. I need them this week. And, um, and so of course it was a fairly testy uh, meeting from there, but we ended up uh, installing 13 of them. Um, and originally 12, but then there's 13 of them on the last week of the quarter and made the number. And, uh, and so it's that kind of like I, when you tell me you, it can't be done, like, yes, it can go back in there and get it done or I'll come and do it myself. And, and so it's, you know, when you have this, this goal and, and this mission in front of you uh, and, and you have the force of personality to really get it done, I think that's, that's kind of what Elon Musk does. He, he believes if it can be done because he knows if he goes and does it himself, it will get done. Uh, that's what that story g- gave to me, and and so now he's also inspired a lot of people to to do great things, which is a you know one of the hallmarks of a great leader. And so, uh, but that's a worthwhile for your audience. That's a worthwhile book to read, in my opinion.
0: Oh, 100 percent. And I I tell people all the time, especially entrepreneurs, it's like okay, you know, some some of the entrepreneurs I'm friends with, like they're very motivated to make as much money as possible. Like I, you know, as am I. <laughs> like, right. but but the thing is, like, what do you like? What do you do to get there? And for me, like, I have to, you know, I'm not trying to build a trillion dollar business, but like learning from these people is important. So it's like, if you, if you're a student of the game, you study that. Something I do want to bring up for the audience, which I think is worth understanding is that Elon Musk actually has like an algorithm that he goes through. It's a five-step algorithm. So it's uh, questioning every requirement, okay? Mm-hmm. Deleting any pro- any part of the process that you can that's considered stupid, The third is simplifying and optimizing the process. The fourth is accelerating the cycle time. You know, so a lot of times, and I think Steve Jobs was was also very good at this, which is if it took six months to do that, they found a way to put so much pressure and force that like you can do it in a month, right? And the fifth was just to automate. The thing that Elon Musk has admitted that he's probably made the most mistakes around of is to go going straight to the automation process and to really go through this rigorously before you automate. And even me, um, like As an example, with uh, my software company Omnicreator, me and my co-founder Daigo, we're doing a lot of things that do not scale, like directly dealing with customers one-on-one, calling them, flying and meeting them in person. And the main thing is just like those are the things that are needed to do to create like a strong business. And more importantly, again, like it's no difference from medical device driving strong utilization and customer success with the product otherwise all you're doing is burning through the market by acquiring customers and then burning them out on the on the on the back end but I think I think like you can take these lessons from a Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and embody them even if you're like a sales rep and just say well how do I what's the force forcing function that I use in my business in my little part of the world to make things even better you know
1: yeah and I, I think that uh, you know uh, Elon Musk is great in terms of just uh, like being smart enough to think of new markets and then going and execute on it. You know, now we look at electric cars as kind of commonplace and, you know, every manufacturer has it. But when Tesla first came out, I mean, it was groundbreaking and, um, and it had some significant technical challenges. I think the first, I think the first Tesla had less than 200 mile range.
0: Yeah, it was terrible. And when they went public, even, uh, you know, Jim Cramer. By the way, I a lot of people like dunk on Jim Cramer. I, I you know, he's he's also made a lot of great picks. But back then, Jim Kramer, Cramer, and all the uh, advisors on on Wall Street and stuff and people with shows were just like, "Don't buy this stock; it's a dog," you know. And then the stock uh, out like went twenty or thirty percent and outperformed like uh, their opening day and did well, you know. But I think like the big, I think the big thing that I take away from Elon Musk one is like. Um, he, he gets criticized, but again, not everybody's Elon Musk. He, so I don't recommend always doing this, but he looks at like ways to transform an entire market and then worries about a business model later for that. You know, I think that's, that's important. But the other side is just like, I think that it's like the four minute mile. Everybody said it was impossible to break the four minute a mile. And then who was it? Roger Bannister who mm-hmm. broke it. Breaks yeah. it in that same year, like uh, 20 other people do it. So, I think like constantly challenging things, and this is the one thing that our industry I don't think does a good job, and I'm at least in my own little world trying to be a catalyst for that, which is to question how we sell and market, you know like for the longest time, and even to this day, people say like you can't you can't sell like capital or you can't sell devices using social media or just like you know digital, mm-hmm. and I think that's like well, why not like we we buy a lot of other things like i know i know I know people who are you know they have like massive net worths who buy, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 watches without ever seeing the watch. Like I have a friend who has purchased the last like two or three Ferraris. He's never stepped in the car or the dealership, like it's all through FaceTime, Instagram, and they just get delivered. So I'm like, why can't that be done with anything else? So I think the one thing I want to see from the industry, and that's why I have people like you on the show and everything is to just constantly challenge like our thinking in the status quo on how we do do things, you know?
1: You know, I think the interesting thing is, you know, you look at the device industry, and we kind of pride ourselves on delivering groundbreaking proprietary technology that that changes patient care and and the finances of hospitals. And then there's people in the industry that are resistant to new technology. As they sell new technology, they're resistant to doing. Yeah. You know, I, I am. I mean, this is gonna. I'm dating myself, but. You know, I was a sales rep when the very first bag phone, the car phone came out. People were like, I'll never use it. You know, we used to, uh, I used to deliver my weekly reports on a, uh, on a disc and I would drive them to my manager's house. There was no internet. There was no, uh, you know, there was no email. It was all before that. And so, you know, you can imagine if somebody said, well, I'm not going to use a computer. I don't, I don't think that's going to be valuable. Well, you know now it's become ubiquitous, and and um, and so it's the same thing with AI. Is, is is certainly if you're not using if you're a rep and you're not using AI, if you're not uh, if you're not writing letters and then editing them using an AI platform, if you're not using social media to connect with your customers, you have this incredible uh, platform right in front of you, and you're. You're way behind the times. You don't, you might not realize it, but you're way behind the times. And, um, and I think that's one of the things that, quite frankly, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm not a great networker. I'm, I'm working. That's, that's my development area for 2024 is I want to be a great networker. And, and so when you introduced me to Omni Creator, it, like, it, it transformed how I uh, articulated some of my ideas. And, and I had all this content that I just couldn't put into a format. And so having that technology and having that that software, like just enabled me to, to be able to uh, to communicate with a, a broader audience. And, and uh, I, I would, here's my unsolicited plug, if you're not on Omni Creator and, and you're on LinkedIn, you, uh, you're behind in times. So you need to get that program. It's very inexpensive and it will transform the way you look at, uh, how you interact with people in the industry and, and your contacts. And I think it's uh, it's invaluable. I've, I've loved
0: it. I really appreciate you saying that. And, you know, again, like, um, you know, when we, when Daigo and I, uh, you know, and Daigo really is the father of that, of that platform. I'm just like a humble, a humble partner that's helping uh sell and market it. But, you know, the whole idea is that we we brought in you know tools like ai to help you improve your writing uh scheduling tools you know a community to get engagement and everything and the whole idea is just to amplify your ability to either develop a thought you know yourself into a thought leader sell etc but i absolutely agree with you jim i mean look like you know w- one of like the most the biggest revolutions that we're in going through right now is um chat gpt which you know for a lot of people who don't you know they're not they're kind of they don't see the the forest beyond the trees that's kind of the introduction of ai to the general public so that they can start getting used to it and i don't know how any salesperson is not leveraging that tool and again like um, uh, shameless plug omnicrater we we are we are integrated with chat gpt as an api so you can use it and literally tell you know, like last night, I I, I turned uh, we have this feature called Starlog. I turned it on and dictated um, something to it, and then told our 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 uh, the AI I was like, "Can you turn this into like a persuasive LinkedIn post and pull in examples from philosophy and stoicism?" And it turned this like five sentence dictation into this like long form post. And you know, again, like I- I'm going to pick on the industry a little bit. Okay don't use social media, don't use these things where your customers are already using them. Okay, use email. Most, 99.9%, actually 100%, because I haven't met a single sales rep, VP, etc., who I read their sales emails, and I was like, oh, this is really good. Most of them are terrible. Like, I- including like, I-, I look at them, and I'm like, are you surprised why it's not being open? And I'll, I'll take it, and I was just like, okay, let's not take my advice. Let's just ask AI, and I'll plug it into AI. I'm like, can you make this more persuasive? And it pulls a completely different email out. And so like it's almost like the, you know, AI and these tools aren't replacing these skills. They're augmenting them. And again, just like what we're expecting our customers to do with their skill set and procedures, why why aren't we doing that ourselves within, you know, within our, our own areas like marketing and sales, right?
1: Well, you know, I, I would say this for me, I love to write. And so I was reluctant to, uh, to really engage ChatGPT because I felt like it was cheating. Like, well, you know, I have it right for me. But what it does, I use it as an augmentation. And so it brings in historical references that would take me hours to, to resource. Same here. And, and then it, uh, it uh, is a great editor. So, you know, as you get verbose, uh, you know, it'll cut you down. If you say 300 words, it will do it for you. And then I go in and edit it and, and make it, you know, make it myself because I want, I want my content to be from, hey, I, I've, I have a lot of battle scars and I want to share those with you. And, and you know, AI can't, uh, can't give those, but it can give me examples that will show uh, for illustrative purposes of how to do it. But I would say more importantly, you know, here's one of the keys to being successful in business and in sales. First is you sell a product that customers want to buy and you sell it in a way that they want to buy it. And so just imagine if you said, well, you know, our sales model is we're going to wait for people to get on airplanes and go to conferences and we're going to sell it that way. You'd be like, dude, you got a problem. You know, that's not how you sell it. And so people don't read emails anymore. They don't read long form. They, you know, it's the Instagram and, and, and Facebook and, and LinkedIn post where if you can articulate your value proposition in a very short two to 300 word post, that's, you're gonna resonate with your customers because that's how they wanna be informed. And um, and then you give them an opportunity to follow up on a, on a deeper level if they're interested. And so you know, I delete emails by the scores. Same here but I'll read somebody's post because I'm I'm interested in what they have to say. Yeah. And so I think that's what omni creators done for me and and what you know what chat gpt has done is as a sales rep how can I be uh you know the, the essence of executive speak how can I have an economy of words and and articulate my primary message in as few words as possible so that it resonates with you know with the right people and I think that's where ai is really going to transform the sales process.
0: A hundred percent, and like you know, just to kind of we'll, we'll wrap up shortly here. And again, Jim, I appreciate you coming on and spending time with time yeah. with us. But like, um, you know, like I'll give you a great example. So again, like because of my business and my show, you know, I I have a. I've uh, put in a lot of different spaces, structural heart, uh, gen surge, orthopedics, et cetera. So in the orthopedic world, there's a journal called the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation called uh, Joey, um, founded by the uh, chair of uh, orthopedics at Bronx Care. So impressive place, Ira Kirshenbaum. And on their edit- editorial board, they have the most heavyweight orthopedic surgeons. And th- the whole purpose of the journal is they're fighting against, um, you know, the old establishment of publishing, which like, you know, the, uh, Walter cool coolers of the world and else, uh, Elsevier's and stuff where they charge for, you know, for your publication charge, all this 100% of their publication is distributed through LinkedIn. So that's why you see all these clinical posts on LinkedIn, because these surgeons are like, man, I don't have to wait to, you know, I'm a private practice surgeon. I'm not, practicing out of the you know hospital or out of HSS. So I can crowdsource my case to like the best minds in surgery and change my process the next day. Okay. So that's already amazing as it is. Well, Joey has a free and I'm attending it again tonight. Every Wednesday, they have this thing called FOMO fear of, of missing ortho. And they have a zoom call where they take one of the, the cases or one of the publications from their journal And they have an open discussion on Zoom with everybody where anybody can join and ask questions. And I've been on these calls and there's like 80, 90, 100 surgeons live on a Zoom call. And I open up and I go through to see which sales reps do I have. I got to give like little props to ConMed. ConMed, you know, helps sponsors these and, you know, some of their people join. But other than that, I don't see any reps. And I tell these reps, I'm like, you can literally go on the Zoom call with the most – powerful people in orthopedics and I've done this before where I've asked a question and, he, and some reps are like, well, I'm really nervous. Guess what I do sometimes? I'll read the publication ahead of time. I'll feed that publication into chat GPT, tell it to be an orthopedic surgeon and say that, you know, like, what are some interesting questions I are going to ask out of this? Yeah. And I and I start being, I'm training my mind. How do I think like an orthopedic surgeon? Then I jump in this, I'll put a question in and they'll say my name, you know, like, oh, hey, Omar Khatib has, has a really good point in this one question. And it'll generate this whole discussion. And now all these surgeons know who I am by name, right. but yet no reps are doing this. They're exactly. they're, waiting, they're waiting to like do a twenty second pitch at the scrub sink while the surgeon's mentally trying to prepare for a case. Like it just doesn't make sense to me, you know.
1: I think we haven't even uh, we haven't even scratched how the technology is going to be used, and I think that you know it's going to transform this industry not only from a sales perspective but from a manufacturing, supply chain, and product development standpoint as well. If you're not in AI, uh, you know, and robotics is a great example. There's all these companies that are trying to compete uh, with uh, with intuitive. You're like, why? Like, jump use AI to interface, to 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 bridge the interface between the technology, the surgeon and the patient. And that will uh, transform the marketplace.
0: Uh, And 100 percent, Jim. You know, I, I really appreciate it. I can hear my my wife knocking on the door because we're trying <laughs> to. But you know, w- great having you on the show. Um, definitely want to have you have you back because I know you have some great content that's going to be released in January, just on uh, some of the uh, leadership methodologies that you have and some other things. But just in, in general, quick plug: Where can people find you if they want to connect?
1: I'm at uh, Jim Alexi on LinkedIn, and um, and uh, my email is jim a at vag.net and uh, I'd love to to talk to you I'm, as you said I'm going to release a a series on decision making and you know I look at some of the decisions I've made and I'm super happy with and some of the decisions I've made I'm not and and how do you make those decisions and and I think that what I'm most anxious about is some of the comments and you know to, to really get that dialogue so I'm uh, I'm anxious to do that and thank you Omar for Uh, you know, being so encouraging to me and, uh, and I I love your content and and I love what you're doing. And and thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Jim was it was, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I want to thank all the listeners for joining today. Be sure to go uh, follow Jim. um, And what I recommend is go to his LinkedIn profile, you know, connect or follow him, and then on the right-hand side, they'll see a little bell icon. Turn that on so you can get all the notifications for when he uh, publishes his content. This is another episode of the State of MedTech. If you haven't already subscribed, give us five stars and write a review, and we'll see you all next. Thank you for enjoying another epic episode of The State of MedTech. If you're feeling inspired and love this episode, do us a favor. Hit that subscribe button and turn notifications on so you never miss an episode. And be sure to give us five stars and write a short review because that helps more people discover this amazing community of ours. If you're a company who has an executive that you'd like to be on the show or perhaps you want to sponsor one of the episodes, shoot us an email at hello at Take care. See you next time.